0: this evening's discussion. For, I know some of you know Cumberland Lodge extremely well, some of you don't know it at all. So for those of you who don't know it at all, you know just a couple of minutes, what is Cumberland Lodge? Well, it's a, it's a royal residence in the middle of Windsor Great Park, and it's the home of an educational charity that's been living there since 1947. And essentially, what we do is we bring people together to discuss tricky issues facing society. And we specialise in bringing people from diverse backgrounds together and always with a strong uh, element of student representation in what we do. So that's what we've been up to. And uh, amongst the things we've been working on uh, of late is uh, difficult histories and positive identities. So we've been running a series uh, over the last year looking at issues of identity and um, the idea of looking at difficult histories is very much Uh, part of our thinking right from the outset because it's such an important uh, topic. What we're going to do this evening, in a minute we're going to hear from uh, James Wallace who is the author of our report which brings together three events. So we start off with a conference and uh, then we refine some of the conference findings in a consultation, then we produce this report and then we launch it. So that's what we're up to this evening. So, we'll hear first of all from James, and then we're going to hear from our panel. It's very good to have with us three panellists. We have Martin Dorton, Emeritus Professor of Economic History at uh, at the University of Cambridge. Obviously, higher education perspective is really very important indeed. Then we have Ellen McCann, who's Director of the Birmingham Museum Trust. Again, as you, you read the report, you'll see museums come up frequently. It's really important uh, dimension uh, of history and public engagement and then we'll have Nick uh, Dennis with us who's Director of Studies at St Francis College Letchworth uh, an independent school Nick also is a history teacher and a fellow of the School's <coughs> History Project, obviously children's education around history again really important aspects of all this, so without any more ado I'm going to hand over to James and then we will crack on with it
1: Uh, Good evening, uh, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, My thanks to all of you uh, for being here for this evening's report launch. Uh, And let me open just by uh, expressing my gratitude uh, to Cumberland Lodge. Uh, My thanks to Ed and to Jan and to Emily and to Helen uh, for their input in fine-tuning this report over recent months. Uh, it's been about uh, 12 months since I first got wind of this uh, opportunity that was offered by Cumberland Lodge and the work really appealed to me on account of its current and topical subject matter uh, with the challenge of producing said policy uh, report um, and I hope that the end result is something that will be of practical use uh, across uh, different sectors and organisations. As uh, Jenny Russell has recently described uh, in the Times, interest in our history seems especially compelling at a time, uh, quote, when Britain is riven by the question of who we are, who we were, and who we want to be. Uh, As Ed outlined, there were two uh, respective uh, events at Cumberland Lodge earlier this year, and these brought together experts uh, from uh, different fields and different countries, and it's great to see some of them uh, in attendance this evening. I think what these events tried to do was to establish what might be learned from existing experience of complex social and cultural histories, uh, particularly within a UK context. Proceedings evidenced opportunities, challenges, uh, and the raw potency of difficult histories as a topic, its capability to invoke intense debate, grievances, but most of all, I think, uh, a willingness for action. Should anyone have uh, specific questions about the report's uh, content, please do uh, come and speak with me uh, during the uh, reception. Uh, But let me just share one or two um, reflective provocations, if you will, uh, designed to tee up the panel debate that will follow shortly. Firstly, delivering critical and more inclusive histories by means of creating shared identities is something that falls beyond historians. Now that might seem a really obvious point to make, But over the course of my experiences, I still feel that there are grey areas and tensions around defining difficult histories, especially how this sits with history as an academic discipline. In one sense, difficult histories can be understood as seeking to refine current historical practice of raising the profile of overlooked or forgotten individuals and groups for which it should be rightly applauded. Uh, of which it should be uh, rightly applauded, But but other historians advocate that in uncovering past divides, and moreover failing to offer resolution to these, historical practice can actually perpetuate division. What correlation can be drawn between the rise of public history as a movement with the growing interest in difficult histories? The museum and heritage sector is pioneering new approaches for thinking through the legacies of past injustices with diverse audiences at the forefront of their minds. So I therefore ask for our collective consideration this evening regarding moral accountability for those doing historical work. Does non-judgmental objectivity, analytical rigor and championing factual evidence mean averting some of the thorny issues that difficult histories often entail? And connected to that first point is another issue around responsibility in terms of enacting change on a practical level. The typical presentation of difficult history subject matter is often simplified to a binary format where an individual is either for something or they are against it. In September, I attended an Intelligence Squared sponsored debate in London with the motion the West should pay reparations for slavery. Speaker arguments were erudite And although the motion was not quite carried, the course of discussions saw a large audience swing in support of it, indicating that many considered reparations justifiable. But one major sticking point lay in the specifics of implementing such a programme, making accountable, legitimate decisions about how such a scheme would operate, without having to categorise differing degrees of compensation and suffering across continents. For me, that experience really illustrated the difficult nature of difficult histories. In other words, adopting a moral stance on an issue, even criticising or blaming the status quo, cannot count for much when others are willing to go one step further, to take on responsibility to actively challenge the mainstream. Fortunately, a host of more cohesive, uh, progressive and innovative enterprises are being undertaken by prominent institutions and passionate individuals. There's renewed interpretation work going on at the National Trust, Uh, there's schemes like the Uncomfortable Art Tours uh, which is currently running across six sites in London. And we're seeing things like collaborative partnerships and dialogue as a way of offering up new perspectives or a different lens on topics such as the restorative uh, justice initiative between the University of Glasgow and the University of the West Indies uh, and the recent appointment of Olivetta Telly, uh, the first black female history professor at the University of Bristol. And I believe that in the last uh, 24 hours or so, the Labour government has announced plans uh, to launch an investigation into the legacies of British colonialism as part of their election manifesto. So perhaps we can take a little bit of heart that such positive action might act to instigate and enhance conversations around how we utilise difficult histories as a force for good within today's volatile environment. I look forward to hearing the thoughts of the panel. Thank you very much.
0: been involved
2: in the whole journey of this so it would be really interesting to get your perspective and you've jetted in from Melbourne to be with us oh, this evening. Right. So, so if I pause, uh, apologies. <laughs> <laughs> but it's so exciting, I'm going to stay awake. Uh, it, it has been, uh, been wonderful. Congratulations to James on an excellent report and Ed for organising it. That's yes, why so I, I was at the um, the two events discussing it. And I was asked if I would comment on um, I'm not sure if you had even time to glance at this report, Part one, section one, does history matter? Well, there's something that's been a best of history for 40 years, if uh, and I think what this shows is it, it, it does. Um, and basically, th- this section is about identity, community, shared purpose, um, and how do difficult histories that James has been talking about, uh, Uh, quote the report, maintain and shape identities, Um, I think you say positive identities, in a diverse society. Well, that's the the task this report has taken on. And I suppose at one of the um, sessions we debated whether or not the word difficult was the right word to use, because obviously the opposite of difficult is smug, complacent, um, comfortable history, and no history should be that. So all history should be difficult, Um, and challenging and questioning, so and critical. So, I think that's what what it's, what it's really about. It's not difficult as against smug, complacent, uh, you know, narrative of kings and queens and, and battles. But I think there's also an issue which comes out of the report. Um, I don't know if James sees it in writing it. Difficult history can itself be complacent. And I think one, one way that came out in the discussion was that. On the syllabus, school syllabus, the Holocaust is taught, and that can mean that the Holocaust is about how the Nazis were appalling in doing what they they did, and that we British were not like that, and that we were offering a sort of redemption. Um, It wasn't something that we did and the monument or, or, or commemoration to be built by uh, the Victoria Tower, by the Thames, by the House of Parliament, is bringing that into our democratic space to show that actually we helped. Now, I think this is um, something we should actually make it more difficult to not be complacent about. Why why do schools teach the Holocaust rather than genocide more widely? As something which is... Uh, much more part of society. Why do not we say, actually, in the uh, kin- kinder transports coming in, who was not brought in, and how this recent book just out how, uh, particularly the girls coming in on the kinder transport were then turned into a sort of you know, domestic um, servants, almost, you know, sort of almost I wouldn't say slavery that would be wrong, but exploited. In- So it can be a bit uncomfortable, that we should make that that story much more uncomfortable. Um, And should we then also start thinking about the use of the word Holocaust by some historians to describe things in British history? So some Irish historians refer to the Irish potato family as a Holocaust. The title of Mike Davis's book... Um, on the El Nino famines, the late 19th century, which killed millions of people within the British Empire, is the late Victorian Holocaust, or the Bengal famine in the Second World War. Now, is that right to do that? Uh, because that wasn't a deliberately active act, arguably. Uh, I've got a big debates over whether Stalin had the d- deliberate act in Ukraine, or it was an unintended consequence of something Else important he was doing, so I think we need to try and make sure that the difficult history we're teaching is not something which compla- is complacent and it's not about us. I would also say this is my, my second, if I like, paradox, that difficult history can also be easy. Uh, in, in here we have some case studies which I talked about in, in the lecture I gave. Uh, Colston's statue in Bristol. Uh, and Rhodes statue in Oxford. Now it's quite easy to paint both of those people as the binary divide that James talked about as being unpleasant people. Rhodes was a white supremacist, Uh, Colston was um, a slave trader. Um, You could could argue that there's very little uh, there which is other than a sort of black-white divide. But Let's think about some other people and how we then uh, deal with their statues, <coughs> their um, part within British history. I'm a commissioner of Historic England. So uh, one thing I have to have to do is decide, is the statue of Rhodes to be you know, delisted? Is it possible to be de- delisted? But if you were to take the statue of Charles Dickens, uh, so we would all read Our Bleak House and think about Little Joe, the crossing sweeper, as a poor person, um, and the, the, the Dickens showed sympathy, or a twist, of course, sympathy to the poor. But then you read a bit more, and you realise that uh, Charles Dickens was also um, a supporter of Governor Eyre, who in 1865 brutally suppressed... Um, a rebellion by freed slaves in Jamaica, Monmouth Bay, and he was uh, quite racist. <coughs> uh, they for- he formed, along with um, Thomas Carlyle, a uh, society, the Defence and Aid Committee, to defend this man who was guilty of killing what 50 odd people, I think. Um, now, how do you then deal with that rather difficult situation? Thomas Carlyle was part of that group, and Thomas Carlyle also wrote a book in eighteen forty nine called A Occasional Discourse on the Negro Question, eighteen forty nine, which in the second edition he changed the word negro, which in itself is not pleasant word to have to say, to a word which um, shall we say, Prince Andrew has recently got himself into trouble for uttering. Um, so Thomas Carlyle said that oh the freed blacks in um, the West Indies are living in luxury and idleness, and gorging themselves on pumpkins. He actually did say that. Uh, and look at the poor suffering working class at home. So and along with him was John Ruskin. So I think what we have to try and work out is that everybody in the Victorian period had views which we would now not consider to be acceptable and so you can't have heroes and villains everybody is of their period and the role of difficult history is to understand that and to make things which we feel comfortable about difficult so the example I would give on that would be the National Health Service, which, with all due respect to the Church of England, Reverend um, Jewell, uh, uh, is meant to be the, the great religion of Britain. Well, if you go back into the National <coughs> Health Service, um, a lot of that in its early days is doing the eugenics. Uh, so William Beveridge, John Maynard Keynes, uh, many, many others were eugenicists. And one of the debates that we had um, at the conference was whether or not the, uh, the name of the lecture theatre at University College London, Francis Colton Lecture Theatre, the great founder of genetic, uh, for eugenics, should be renamed. Well, then you see you have this whole issue about well, eugenics permeates things that we now find commendable. <clears throat> and how do we handle that? And make people think how things which we like and admire and um, really want to protect, um, might themselves have origins which we find difficult. So we've got to make sure that these difficulties run through everything that we, we study. It's not put into some separate box for, you know, there be difficult things. Um, I think that's we, what we, we, we must do. I think that's what that that report um, is is getting at. So uh, Churchill would be another example. Standing Alone, all the stuff you get now about the uh, by some dex- dexiteers, shall we say, uh, but also remembering that he was explicitly racist at the time of the, the Bengal famine. Uh, uh, then I think the other sort of issues we need to think about are um, what do we do about uh, museums? I won't say much about this now because I'm sure that our museum expert will talk about it. But footnote one of the report says it's an issue of funding, but whether or not museums will adequately take on the whole difficulty of how to uh, interpret the British Empire. And it refers to the museum which was in Bristol and then was closed down, uh, the the, the, uh, Bristol Museum of um, uh, Commonwealth and Empire and the report says that National Museum is increasingly not in a position to take risks. And I think it's really striking that there is no museum of the British Empire. There is a Museum of Slavery in Liverpool, uh, which I recently visited. Um, it's now rather tired, uh, but it's also, I think, rather limited because it concentrates on the middle passage, which obviously is very, very important, but it excludes other forms of slavery, including internal African slavery, uh, which, of course, is a very difficult issue to to deal with. But it also fails to note that uh, after the abolition of slavery in the West Indies in 1833, Indian domestic slavery continued. uh, People whom we might think as being admirable liberals like the Strait that themselves the had domestic slaves at home. So I think we have to try and open that up. And I think one of the museums which is dare well, I say my favourite museum in London, <laughs> uh, the VA, um, I think is culpable. Because it doesn't actually admit the fact that one of its founding collections is the East India Company collection. And it has some work being done on some of the collections, but almost you have to go into about five layers down in their website to find it, and they're not—they're not actually owning up to it. They're not owning up to the fact that their collection came from the East India Company, and that some of their donations came from people who made the money from slavery. So I think there is still too much silence um, in some of these these, these areas. Um, I probably. More than my ten minutes, <laughs> uh, and I've started a <laughs> I have, yeah. I started by the link to museums, so that's quite. Perhaps I better shut up.
0: Thank you very much indeed, Martin.
2: That's really good. then would you like to pick up? Honestly, uh, you you've been
0: introduced to museums, and uh, I'd be interested to get your take because you've not been involved in this process so far. So, it'd be interested to get your perspectives. Well,
3: as director of Burning Museums, I very much welcome this report because there's a lot in it that chimes with the experience and methods of Birmingham museums. We are the biggest civic museum service in England, we have nine venues and a collection of over a million objects which reflects the fact that in the 19th century Birmingham was one of the richest cities of the British Empire. In fact, I'm fond of saying to my senior management team that we're squatting on the Luther of Empire and they hate it when I say that. <laughs> Until about six years ago, our audiences were heavily dominated by white ABC1 elderly people, a bit like me in other words, but the population of Birmingham is very young and it's super diverse at the last census. 42% of the population was EAN, and only 9% of our visitors. And the displays in Birmingham Museum and Art Gallery, which is our flagship venue, lent very heavily, on the Western European art tradition and in particular on the pre-racket lines. But our audience research showed that what local audiences wanted to see in the museum was more local history, more of their own history. And they were also interested in museums being safe places where they could address difficult issues. And that's the phrase that our audiences use. They use the phrase safe places. So we have tried to move on. We've done a lot of different things, but in particular, there have been three groundbreaking projects which have changed our audiences, but have also changed us internally. Uh, so that now, 26% of our audiences are being, it um, uh, still doesn't fully reflect the diversity of the population, but that's quite a shift to make in, in six years. The first of these projects was called Nights of Raj, and it was curated by a local artist, (coughs) Mohammed Ali, who's of Bangladeshi extraction. Indian restaurants are a big thing in in Birmingham. Uh, They're in fact mostly Bangladeshi, and so the exhibition dealt with the experiences of these early immigrants, uh, many of which were quite grim and unpleasant, in setting up their restaurants. And as part of the project, we collected a booth from an early bangladeshi restaurant so that we, we can now display this part of the city's history alongside the work of Edward Coley, Vernon Jones. The second project that shifted us was called Collecting Birmingham, And we, we undertook this because we realized we had very little in the collection that reflected working class life and almost nothing that reflected the experience of the post-war immigrant population. So we collected from four inner-city wards and it was a very long process and involved an awful lot of tea biscuits. But mm-hmm. it changed our practice quite dramatically because up until then the curators had considered themselves the experts. They dictated what would enter the collection. And this reversed the process so that the community groups and individuals to whom we spoke decided what would enter the collection. It also encouraged us much more to work in teams, so uh, in a lot of museums there has been a tradition of the curators being at the top of the social tree as it were, and uh, this made us much more democratic internally. And rather to our surprise it went on several awards, But probably the most radical project we did was one called Past Us Now, which was funded by the Arts Council Changemakers Program. And then we deliberately set out to try and address the legacy of the British Empire. We worked with a group of six young female South Asian activists to try and tell stories from the point of view of the people who were colonized, not as we had done in the past from the point of view of the people who were doing the colonizing, Uh, And it was a very uh, emotional project, there were a lot of high feelings and strong words. I remember passing the office where the discussion was taking place one day and hearing things being thrown. So I stayed out of that. Um, But despite being so difficult, first of all it was enormously popular with the public and again attracted a, a very new type of audience. But it changed us internally. For, for the better, and I hope permanently. And one of the curious side effects of this whole uh, punch throwing episode was that it gave my staff a lot of confidence in their ability to co curate with community groups and communicate effectively. <coughs> <better. coughs> we haven't stopped. Our next project is looking at a temporary exhibition about. Birmingham's long history of uh, rioting and revolution. The people of Birmingham are, on the whole, very agreeable and uh, peaceful, and it's thought that talking modelled hobbits on them, but periodically <laughs> they break yeah. out and they go a <laughs> lot further than throwing whole punches. Yeah. <laughs> and so, we are going to try and address this long history with the aid of people who have actually been involved in the riots in some cases. And at some point, we're going to have to try and address one of the most famous episodes in Birmingham's recent history, the Birmingham pub bombings, which is still highly contentious and a very live issue in Birmingham. And and I think what it's really taught us is that um, museums aren't places of authority where you tell people what they need to know. It has to be about a process of, of dialogue, often long and slow and sometimes rather tense and difficult. And uh, much better if facilitated by a lavish tea and biscuits, perhaps. <laughs> <laughs> thank you very much indeed.
0: We haven't got tea and biscuits, but we do have canapés and drinks later on, just as. Yeah. <laughs> <we're>, uh, uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you very much. It was really interesting to get that perspective, and then we move on to to thinking about schools. Now, I've got two children. My daughter has learnt. And learnt, and learnt that Hitler was a bad man. Now, my son's about to go through this process, so please tell us that there's more to, uh, to history in schools than, than the Nazis and than Britain winning the, the Second World War. two of Yeah, the of
4: course, of course. There we are.
5: Um, I, I mean, I think, you know, before we go into that, I think the report is brilliant in the sense that it is so expansive and it's... Really useful from a school history point of view. we get talked about in relation to the discipline of history, but to have a section um, by itself <laughs> uh, is really useful. But also in terms of the heritage industry, and I'm going to make a, a, you know, of course, I would do this. I'm a teacher, i teacher, and make a special play in terms of uh, the importance of of schools. Um, we are the locus point, really, for universities and also for um, museums. Our students come to see us and bring in their, their diverse backgrounds, their different views, their different stories, and they expect to hear different stories around a variety of things. And one of the things I think was really interesting to me reading the report was you know, this idea of trust that is absolutely central to what happens in schools. Um, and I think this is where schools can do an amazing job in terms of tackling some of these really difficult questions in a space not necessarily a safe space um, but where it is uncomfortable but they are used to being uncomfortable in lessons um, and you know it depends on the particular students you ask if you ask them if their history is difficult if you ask my year 8 on Friday uh, last two periods they would say yes because <laughs> you want to go home and um, if you ask my other students during the rest of the week they would say yes because we get to think and ask difficult questions And I just want to pick up a couple of issues um, just that Martin raised around um, genocide and talking about difficult histories. Um, There has been, there is quite sophisticated discussion in the strategic community around um, some of these issues. Um, But it's, you know, the phrase, you know, the future is not equally distributed. It's Those ideas are not equally distributed as well. But there is really rich theorizing within the, for his position, from the historical association talking about these things. And normally at the school safety project conference every year, there was normally some particular issue um, around that. And I want to make a pitch um, uh, for my wife, who's an academic. Um, I have taught Nazi Germany for a number of years. Um, I studied it at school, I studied it at university, um, but it was only this year that I came across the story of the midwife of Auschwitz. Um, who was uh, a Polish prisoner there, and she actually uh, delivered, I can't remember how many babies during that time. Now, my mind was completely blown by this idea that there was a midwife in Auschwitz. And then I thought, let me go and have a look at my history books that I have to see if it's actually mentioned there. It's not. Um, and the reason why my wife was looking at this is because she's doing research on difficult births and midwives, very... Uh, uh, is related, um, related to pregnancy, but that's not the normal part of the normal historical discourse. So I think there's a really interesting disconnect around that. Uh, when we talk about history, talking about difficult things, there are elements which aren't within <coughs> the normal kind of discourse or what you might study at university as well. But I'll come back to some of those other issues. Um, I think one of the key things for me. From reading reports is about subject knowledge um, and linking to what is taught at university, but also um, the training that um, teachers get at university um, or at um, particular school institutions. Because just to make sure everyone understands, teacher training now can happen in a variety of places, um, and not a lot of that is actually spent um, teaching or actually getting the grips with difficult topics, so to speak. Um, so I did lots of kind of early modern modern history but doing some medieval stuff from my year sevens when I first started teaching was completely alien to me and then I had to learn um, and use that but I think there's a real uh, real opportunity and I think the report highlights this to actually work with a variety of institutions to fill capacity and but to make it very sensible and for the academics in the room my um, own research excellent framework has an elements um, of um, public engagement, I think that please make sure you do that and come to work with schools um, and actually produce, and help us produce some materials because we really do need that and if I can also uh, push for the idea of an educational resources, we're actually getting use, or getting having library access. Um, it is very difficult to keep on top of the historical debates if you don't have access to journals um, which teachers do not have, or actually some of the basic research that that's happening, and it's it makes it very difficult for us to actually really engage in some of these difficult issues. But that's um, one particular thing. Um, one of the other problems in terms of subject knowledge is also to do with textbooks. Um, and that, they are written by um, teachers in some cases, but if they don't have the knowledge, textbooks are very very limited um, in what's actually being produced, and uh, there is the danger of presenting a single narrative or a single story around a particular issue. Um, And there's some really interesting work um, where people are taking um, different views. The SAP, uh, we've produced some books where the uh, authors have actually talked about their views of things and why they've chosen particular stories. And I think that really revealed the process. Um, I think one of my favorite museums um, that's actually done that is the Whipple Museum at Cambridge, the Science Museum, where they've had exhibitions where they've actually said why they've chosen particular objects. Um, and I thought that was really fascinating to see um, that as an example. <coughs> um, but the other thing that I think also in terms of subject knowledge is also lack of confidence. Um, when I was speaking to uh, a teaching colleague um, who teaches at another school in London, and um, she was saying that she just feels such a burden to get it absolutely right, And the psychological pressure to do that, I think, is something which is not really discussed. So, it's not just the subject content, but making sure you feel confident. And Rebecca Harris, um, who's based at Reading, um, has done lots of interesting work around subject teachers or, or teachers of history not feeling confident to have, uh, to have these kinds of discussions. Um, but when we do, we can do some really, really great work. Um, and so, just a way of you know, moving that discussion forward, and I don't know a couple of do some work around this. So, residentials. Are really good, great great. so if you are involved in institutions that um, want to work with teachers that would be great to actually spend some time thinking about some of these questions and actually producing some of the resources um, it's not very useful um, although it's quite nice to be invited to an institution for an afternoon or for a day to have a discussion about something it needs to be sustained that's how we all work in terms of how we can engage with material um, that's the first real subject knowledge, and um, I now want to kind of really turn to the recommendations um, at the end of the report, which I think are really important. Um, and it, one of the questions, and I think this is what Lodge does, is engage with young people. So there's some really good groups um, like the Young Historians Project, which are doing some excellent work, and these are A-level students who are really t- tackling these types of issues. And I think you know if there was a way that we could Facilitate discussions in places like here, um, working with schools and other institutions as well. That will allow us to move uh, a lot you know, forward rather than just listening to people in my <coughs> bracket above, and uh, quite a, a lot more in terms of some of the uh, age of the teachers. Um, the second thing is partnerships, uh, and I've alluded to this already. <coughs> um, this is vitally important historical association, school system project, um, are doing lots of work in a number of areas, but we need help. Um, and I'm not saying just in terms of money, but in terms of people's time. It is really important to engage in discussions around what can be done. And i, if I give you a, a, one example I've been um, asked to do some work with some uh, heritage um, institutions previously. And it's been quite interesting because they've normally had particularly about how the money could be spent uh, and what should be done and sometimes it's been quite difficult to say well that sounds fantastic but that's not really going to get my year 10s really excited about coming to your particular institution and this is what might be really helpful and that's not to say that we are we have complete knowledge of that but it's that dialogue Um, and where projects have been really successful is that dialogue has, has taken place and it really is a true partnership but I think there's a lot more Um, that can be done there around that. Um, I also think, um, one of the the other things that were mentioned was around the robot technologies. and I have to say, I am not a fan of removing robots from Oxford. Um, And one of the reasons why, because I like students to engage with them. And one of the things that I think is really important and would be really useful um, is to actually use technology to do that. So there are a couple of things that can be done. Um, So there's something called IDP, which um, Apple used to use, but basically once you get into proximity of the device, it launches a web page, and you can engage with it while you are there. Um, And that's where you can give different interpretations, different views, rather than just presenting it as it is, which is, here is a story, but rather a variety of stories. But that's that's very, very, low cost to do, it doesn't damage the actual Statute building itself, um, but it it allows that discussion to take place, and I think there is lots of interesting things around that and augmented reality. And normally we talk about phones and young people as being um, the basis (coughs) of lives and teachers' lives, but I think this is where there is a real opportunity to use the devices that they have in their hands to engage with the wider community and what's happening outside. I think there's also um, an interesting question around working with exam and this is where I would really ask um, colleagues in the higher education sector, especially historians, to really um, uh, make a push on this. And and I'll give you one example. When I started teaching, and just finished my my, um, research, and I was supervising one of my year 12s on a dissertation on the British Empire. Um, And um, I had to send off the the actual piece of coursework to be approved by the examiner. uh, the examiner came back and said, "No, this is this is terrible. You know, this is wrong." And uh, I got very really angry and wrote sort of a letter to the exam board saying, "Well, that's because the, the actual knowledge of the person who's the examiner is about ten years out of date. This has happened. This has happened. This has happened." Um, so we're in a situation sometimes where we have some of our students um, or you know, some of our teachers who have considerable more knowledge, uh, but the exam boards um, haven't necessarily moved on. And that's not to say they're all bad, but I think one of the things. I was also in the report is that um, migration as um, one of the courses that only came about due to a fortuitous uh, meeting. Um, and why it's now actually on the syllabus, um, and it has to be much more planned than you know just a chance encounter. There has to be some real thinking around. That. Um, and you know, Martin also mentioned about the, the British Empire. It is one of the of the kind of really interesting things is that you know it's not really taught at A um, or even lower it down to school, but I think that's partly because um, the volume and, and people trying to find a way through the subjects and going back to the sources, I think, um, there's lots of really interesting things that can be done there. Um, so just to kind of round this up, I think formal you know, history is difficult, as Martin has said, um, and especially if you're in my Euro class on a Friday, um, <laughs> we can say that. It, 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 but the, the the important part is, is that from the history community point in view, you know, we've, we've done quite a lot of thinking on this, um, and I think we can really enhance the discussion. There is still a lot for us to do. And I just want to pick out you know, a couple of things which kind of almost precede this report, um, but we don't really discuss. So you know, for uh, people who are slightly older, um, you know, we can talk about the reports in the early 1980s. So the Ransom <coughs> report, the SWAN reports. Um, the Run and We Trust um, future multi-ethnic crystal reports in, in, the, in 2000. So we're talking about a 20-year gap where history was seen as um, a really important subject. And um, we're kind of having the same discussion today. Um, and so I think there's, there's lots of work that we could um, use and that's already been done. And I do think this is one of the strengths of the reports again, is to be multidisciplinary. And I think there's lots of work um, from in sociology and psychology. That issue of trust, um, I think, as well, is really, really useful. So I, you know, I commend the reports. I think it's a really good starting point. I think James has done an amazing job putting together really disparate ideas um, around this. Um, but there is <coughs> a and we're willing to take up the challenge.
0: Thank you very much indeed. Let's immediately open it up. Anyone got any questions or comments they want to make?
4: Yeah. Uh, sorry, I'm probably new for this. i
0: probably asking... Oh, sorry, we've <coughs> got a roving mic, sorry. <laughs> if you want to, you can introduce yourself. Are we doing Hey, um, hello. Uh,
4: my name is Benedek. Benedek I'm um, studying actually PhD at the University of London, South Madrid. Uh, coming to this whole topic, so sorry if I asked you the questions. Um, if we think about something that's a difficult history, and we are in the UK, probably the most difficult question is the, I won't mention the B word, so the 40, 52% type of question. We think about it as basically based on two um, hypotheses. One, that there has been a free trade in a, uh, in a big empire in the past which probably wasn't as great as it's supposed to be. <coughs> Sorry. And on the other hand, and also another view of the history, European history, and uh, just think about dying in the ditch, find them on the beaches, that kind of thing. Uh, if, if you think about, like, even today, um, the, just recently done my uh, citizenship test, uh, one, of the, one of the worst appears there is the reason for World War I being that Germany and beat the British Empire. So is there something more that we can do to actually make sure that uh, the largest part of the society actually learn what actually happened in history? <laughs>
2: <laughs> okay, well, the, the, the section that I, of, of what I was going to say was I edited it out, yes. Uh, how does one deal with um, Marc-Francois? Yeah, you know, Mark Marc Francois saying, you know, my father fought the Nazis and I'm not going to be told what to do by a German. I mean, the kind airbus saying that perhaps if you leave the European Union, you won't be able to make wings of airbuses in, uh, in, in, in North Wales. Um, well, you know, this whole rhetoric of just standing alone, uh, which I think you alluded to, needs to be corrected. Britain didn't stand alone. It had the biggest empire in the world behind. It perhaps... You know, certain ways which I mentioned Ben or found far, Church far, Churchill thought that maintaining the food ration in Britain was, was more important than several million people dying. We we ha- to we have to insert, we have to insert, um, insert that uh, um, I, The reason I was in Melbourne I was giving lectures there on World Trade Organization rules the, our, our political masters don't seem to understand what the World Trade Organization Is how it was set up and and how how it functions. So next week I have to go and give a talk on that to the Department of International Trade. Um, (laughs) (laughs) The fact that they're asking me now, (laughs) what is a trade deal? You you just just made it, it's a faker's belief. I was going to throw back to you though, Franco. Um, because there's just been a huge debate, hasn't there, in Spain. My understanding is, correct me if I'm wrong, that all uh, images relating to the Franco era had to be removed, and now the body of Franco has been, has been, been removed. Um, is that the right thing to do? Like, like Rhodes, uh, we had a big debate in the, in the conference about what Margot Finn called erasure, taking things down, or erudition, explaining. Now, I'm on the side, I think, of eruditions. I think, think you are, and, and exactly what you just talked about, rather than airbrushing things out so one forgets them. But then on the other hand, if you have certain statues still so kept there, they can then become themselves sites of commemoration in a way which is a positive commemoration. So where does it draw the line about you know, taking down statues of Confederate generals, which might be sites for white supremacists? Whereas I don't think yet Oriel College in Oxford has had white supremacists outside um, Cecil Rhodes. But it's a big issue, isn't it? So the other point I was going to make, just to complete what you were saying, if you look at the debate over Brexit, it is, it is about national identity. Identities can be positive and they can be negative. And if you look at the 2011 census, most people, the majority of people in, in London, if they were asked do, how do you define yourself, they would say British. If you ask people in declining northern towns, they would say English. Uh, and Mike Kenny has said, is that really that definition of identity as being Englishness um, lies behind uh, some of the uh, questions about, uh, about Brexit. Now, We've got a very difficult not to be patronising smug um, cosmopolitan liberals from the south of England saying you've got it wrong. Because um, got are trying to, got to try think about how, how does one think through these, these definitions of, of um, Englishness. Um, speaking as a Welshman uh, I, I could possibly comment. Oh,
1: yeah,
5: yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and either of you want to respond? I'm happy to, sorry, I mean, it's really, um, so um, one of our history education colleagues, Arthur Chapman at Duke of Education, um, has been looking at the citizenship test, Mm -hmm. um, and um, there's been some really interesting things, because as history teachers, we looked at it and thought, this makes no sense to us, Mm -hmm. Um, and um, I think there's an article coming out about that, so um, it is interesting, and this is one of the things I I think is really important in terms of teacher training. uh, Michael Riley is in the room um, you know, we're looking at inquiry questions and making sure we ask really good questions. I'm not sure that the citizenship has been designed, tests have been designed in the same way. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I cannot speak in terms of that, but I, I, what I would say is um, in the examples of history teaching that I have seen in a variety of schools, that it is very, very complex. Um, but, but, we seem to have uh, almost as this mentioned in his book um, this kind of melancholia, this, this this kind of longing for when Britain was amazing and great, um, and you know we, we we haven't separated that really, and I think that's part of the whole discussion around the big word um, things like that, but it's it's dismantling that and that, I think that's one of the issues at school level we find difficult because um, limited curriculum time which is also mentioned in the report but I don't think there are enough tools for us at the moment that we can really use to tackle that issue um, because it is difficult where I would say those issues are tackled is not in history but in English for example so if you read a wide variety of texts from around the world We do talk about Colonialism. I remember reading Things Fall Apart by Chaby when I was at school. Um, And that was an eye-opener to me, um, which I've never really kind of experienced that discussion. I also teach politics. Um, and We do have lots of discussions around a variety of things, and it's easier for us to have that discussion. And this is where I think just going back to the idea of being multidisciplinary, this is really important. It's not just school history leverage or use some of the other tools that we have within that already exist within schools and other
6: disciplines too. Yeah. Just get to get the, you there. Mike. Thank you. Mike Riley. I um, train history teachers at the Institute of Education and I'm former director of the School of Project. Okay. Um, I think in many ways we're fortunate in this country in that um, we're not in a situation where we're living in, in um, a post-conflict, a period of post-conflict. I mean, I've worked with teachers in the Lebanon, in, in um, Kosovo, um, in Cyprus, where, believe me, the problems are much more fundamental uh, because there is, there is ongoing uh, conflict and the potential for conflict reopening. Uh, we're not in that situation. Um, but it seems to me the area that's highlight one of the areas highlighted in the report that the am moved to, is uh, the teaching of the British Empire, which, uh, or the lack of it, which in my view is deeply problematic. Uh, from the schools' perspective, there is a lot of research to show that many of our students are deeply alienated from the history they are taught uh, in, in school. They can't find a connection with it. Um, because it is far too traditional. And yeah. it, it doesn't address, as they perceive it, their histories. And that is deeply, deeply worrying. And I'm wondering uh, what we can do about this. I think it's really interesting that, uh, in addition to this report, there are two, two other reports that were we'll published last year. One is the RHS report on the manner of the history of women in, in universities and lack like of being lecturers in, in universities and the other is the Tide uh, report on teaching the British Empire and, identity and migration. And now this report uh, and I'm wondering what the way forward is on this, uh, specifically can I, can I ask the panel what they think about uh, the, the issue that you that raised in terms of a national museum of the British Empire and whether or not, in your view, this would be a good thing. Uh, I mean, I remember taking my trainees to the, uh, to the uh, Empire and Commonwealth Youth Museum in Bristol, uh, which <coughs> in many ways was deeply problematic. I mean, it was organized chronologically, uh, beginnings of empire, zenith of empire, end of empire. In the end of empire section, where I and my trainee history teachers expected it to be about the struggle for independence, and about freedom. What do we have? Whole exhibitions about Britain's contribution to worldwide forestry. (laughs) Um, Interviews with washed-up imperialists about how they manage their (laughs) servants. I mean, it is deeply problematic. And my question is, would, in that kind of (laughs) in the light of that, a national museum on the British Empire
0: be a good thing or not? Okay. can we hold that one? Can I add something to that? Because i just picking up on that disconnect that you're you're saying that students have. One of the things we discussed in the report is um, trying to get students to engage in history by starting local, starting with their families, um, and whether that might be an entree as well. So perhaps we could run those two things together. So... uh, Far away. you do you want to say something about from a
3: museum yes, perspective on that? I, yes. I think the idea of a National Museum of the British Empire is a terrible oh, one. <laughs> because it just allows everybody else to cop out of the discussion. And I think it's a sort of topic which is much better addressed at a local level yep. because all parts of Britain were mm. part of the British Empire and profited from it don't get me started on prints on how the Scots did it. (laughs) That's why I'm not working in Scotland anymore. And I really really feel it's much better for museums to have the responsibility to address these
2: issues at a local level. Shall I pick that up? Well, I I agree with that completely. Um, I used to be on the board of the National Maritime Museum. And in a way, you have it there, because uh, they're organisation by oceans. So the Atlantic showed the, the link between uh, slavery throughout time, you know, trade. Um trade. And that that also involved people from the local community coming in. But what? how do you describe something? Uh, at the time, they were called slave bracelets, manacles, handcuffs. So you get people to come in and sort of talk, talk about it, engage the, the local community. I mentioned the V&A. The V&A ought to be showing how slavery is is implicated there. But with, the British Museum, um, the British Museum, I think to be fair, some of their recent ex- exhibitions, like the one now on, on um, Islam and Western art, is doing some of that. So it's too, it's too important; it permeates everything. Myself and Ed were, were initially economic historians. Um, you've got to show how somewhere like Cromford, uh, the mill Cromford, has done an excellent job of showing where the capital came from to go into the mills, from slave owners, where the cotton came from, and where it was sold. And that has engaged people from local communities in Leicester, I think also in Birmingham, uh, from communities which were affected by the that worldwide uh, you know, resources and the selling of it. So I think that's the way to do so. I agree. Lo- local, global engagement, yeah. and not putting it into a separate museum. Which would be a nightmare in terms of the uh, interpretation that you refer to.
0: You, you've got to get, you've got to engage kids, and you've got to make them interested. What well, what would make them really
5: well? I go think, for I think it. As, as Michael said, when I'm I'm exploring I'm exploring Swansea, and one of the things when we were looking um, at uh, slavery, the slave trade, um, was looking at how the Welsh still members were involved in that. <laughs> And I mean, immediately then, they were like, oh my word. So it was just down the road. Yeah. Um, and it made it a very different thing rather than it was something that just happened out there. Um, so putting the kind of global, local together and making that connection is really, really powerful. And they think about it in yeah. a very different way. Um, I, I agree having a museum would be a, a terrible idea. Um, but I do what I do think would be really useful um, is Around art exhibitions and various other things, because that uh, there's more. It it gives there's more give around those types of things, and I think that would be um, a, a really useful discussion. But it, <coughs> back, this is you know one of the, the struggles that we do have is curriculum time, yeah. um, and most students, or a number of students, will finish history by the time they're fourteen, mm-hmm. yeah. um, and that's the issue. So. Mm-hmm. You know, if most history teachers will have maybe one or two, if you're really lucky, two hours a week, um, or one hour a week to go from 1066 traditionally, uh, possibly up to the 20th century. Um, and so, with one of the reasons why they may do it chronologically. Um, but there are also, there are history teachers, and um, this will be something that will be discussed at a school's <coughs> project. They have completely rewritten their curriculum to actually engage with um, some of the, the kind of traditional ideas, but also looking at from the point of students as well. Um, so, but it's this is you know, it does happen, but it's making sure it's available to everybody.
0: We have time for one more question, and I'm, I'm
5: let's, let's take it as a pair. Could we go?
0: Let's take them as a three, <laughs> one, two, three. okay? Then we'll, we'll, we'll round it off and short, sharp. Respect. Um, okay, um, mine's, I suppose in a way, an addendum, so
1: um, I'm Andy Payne, I'm the Head of Education of the National Archives, and I would just uh, sort of make a plea that um, for the role of archives in enabling uh, discussions around difficult histories, uh, there's two and a half thousand public archives in the UK uh, that can provide fantastic raw material for uh, students and teachers and academics to, to work with, um, and you know, would absolutely embrace uh, schools to, to work with them. Um, and uh, the, the point around that is that that material can be a great inspiration for creative responses as well. And I think working with um, creative practitioners and artists, filmmakers, um, creative writers, and so on, can uh, really enable
6: students to, to work with some of these difficult subjects. Thank you. Mm-hmm.
3: Hi, I'm Katie Markham from Newcastle University. Um, My question's around funding. Um, We know that Difficult histories, talking about it, (coughs) takes time to do it well, takes money, to put on exhibitions to deal with this stuff, takes money, and we're also in a period of acute funding crisis for a lot of our public services. (coughs) How do we continue to have these conversations around Difficult Histories with school children? How do we continue to do that work in museums? when
0: we're facing with that kind of budget. Okay, so archives, funding issues.
4: And positive identities. Um, my name is Ben and I'm teaching free history at Goldsmiths. And um, I heard many interesting things about difficult histories, but I was wondering about the second term, positive identities. You also talked about inclusivity, so is a positive identity a non-exclusive identity, and what would that be? I have kind of... Uh, I would just... Like to for you to share your thoughts on that term as well, on positive identities and what that could be and why it is important and how those would emerge or be fabricated. Thank you. Thank you.
0: Would like to? Should we just pick up on rule of archives? Anyone want to add anything to what was said? Here, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <Yeah>. here. <Yeah. laughs> that's that's really helpful <laughs> <laughs> in a positive way. Yeah. And then, okay, so funding. How do we deal with the funding?
3: Well, funding is a problem. I don't know how we continue. I think an awful lot of this country's regional museums are kept along by faith alone at the moment. And uh, if it, this continues for many more years, uh, they will fall to the ground sit in a crash. I think it's very disappointing that there is more investment in the work of the regional museums in particular, because what they're doing is working with the population, the long-suffering taxpayers of the United Kingdom to give them their own histories and their own senses of identity. What we focus on in Birmingham a lot is place-making, so that we look at the history of the city, multiple histories of the city, so that people can feel part of it.
5: Um, Sorry, just on following, I would say there is an opportunity, I think, to actually merge a number of activities, especially from school and uh, a higher education point of view, so widening participation, outreach, all these things already happen, um, but they've be happened in different silos. And I think if you actually got the widening participation office working with the outreach office along with some of the academics who are working in particular areas, that so they could come for the day and you do different things around that, then you know that would actually cover off a, a number of issues as well. Final comments on identity.
2: post in no the letter. Shall I? Well, how, how many minutes are there? <laughs> 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 uh, I, like I slightly alluded uh, to it in the way in which identities are are shifting. I talked about English identity coming through. I'm Mike Kenny, very interesting book on that. Saying it's one of the striking changes of the last you know, hundred years, whatever the sense of it, becoming English. And I think that some that goes back to your question you asked me about the, the B word and, and how that's mm. be, being viewed when the Secretary of State for Northern Ireland when Brady said I didn't realise that people in Northern Ireland voted on sectarian lines um, that's I think a, a rather striking comment uh, now do you view identity of being you know, a unionist or a nationalist in Northern Ireland as positive or negative negative? Uh, and these things are Difficult, but where does one draw it? Uh, nationalism, well, ethnic nationalism might not be as good as civic nationalism. So I think those are the sorts of issues that one has to try and, and talk about in schools and, and university. I think the recent book by Frederick Cooper on citizenship, going back to your citizenship test, is very interesting about how different countries define citizenship. And then we go back to the empire and the way in which some imperialists in the 19th century went back to the Pax Romana. Everybody who was a citizen of the British Empire has equal rights within the British Empire. Well, Windrush. So I think that we need to to take that issue about identity and how it's defined over time by different people and popularize it.
5: I think what well, I would say from a school's point of view, um, we're required to teach British values and uh, British identity, um, whatever that may be, which is always hilarious, um, especially what's going on uh, in politics. And um, one of my students will be coming to me and say, is this British values, sir, about what's happening at the moment? <laughs> and I be just going, I can't really say anything. This is what we're doing today. Um, so you know, we do tackle these issues, and this is where I think you know, schools are really important in having that trust uh, with the students and allowing us to pick apart and actually combine things in a way which would be incredibly difficult outside because we say that we are a community, regardless of where you are, it's bringing all these different people together. Um, so we, we do, it's it's a constant negotiation, um, You know, as well as all the other things that teachers have to do. And it, it is. You we know, can be incredibly difficult work um, at the sharp ends and sometimes it's very easy where I can do a lovely assembly of tick. I've done my British values uh, for today. So, but it is something which I think is a positive way of engaging with whatever that identity is. I mean, it does happen, but it is difficult.
0: We need to come to an end. Oh, sorry, you want to say something urgently? Urgently. Yeah. Urgently. Okay. <laughs> You're, this is definitely the final word.
3: Uh, oh, okay. Cumberland we have and to... Lodge, I don't know much about. Um, sorry, my name's Cassie, and I'm a fellow of the Young Foundation. Um, I don't know much about Cumberland Lodge, but in what I've read this evening, couldn't Cumberland Lodge persuade whichever government or hung parliament gets in that <laughs> one of the points about communities is pouring money into difficult histories. It seems to me that any government is going to have to face that, that we're a divided nation. And why not make the funding case for more money spent on difficult histories?
0: That's probably a a very nice way of saying, actually, what we want is this report not to just... um, (laughs) vanish into the ether but we really want this to be taken seriously and for the conversation to continue but actually people in, involved in policy at le- levels to, to, to get on board with this so we will make sure this is disseminated as widely as possible and also targeted at key people and that will include uh, whoever ends up uh, in government <laughs> um, we did say the Labour government earlier on I'm <laughs> uh, yeah, not sure that was a slip of the tongue right? uh, but, um, but anyway, the thing if, if you have ways and means of getting uh, this or the electronic version into the hands of people that have influence on these issues, then please, please, please help us to do that. We need... Sorry, we really need to come to a, a close. Um, is, it de- is it desperate?
1: Go for it. If we had the meeting for you in the House of Lords, could you guarantee that people would know about
4: it and would come? We could get a lot of interest from inside. If we want an audience, we want to talk about it. Well, there we are. That's an offer
0: you can't refuse, <laughs> isn't it? So we will, we will have a meeting in the House of Lords, courtesy of Baroness Nicholson, and uh, we will make sure that those that need to hear it will hear it. So thank you. Now, would you join me in thanking our panellists and my colleagues who put us on this evening?